0: Attention listeners, Astrology Hotline is at war. At war with unanswered astrology questions. We have the weapons, we have the training, but to achieve ultimate victory we need your help. I want you to take out your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, crush all five stars, and rain down a righteous review of furious satisfaction. I want you to open up Spotify, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, and launch one high-speed thumb of flaming death at that five-star rating. And I want you to find the gnarliest, most insidious astrology question you can find. Email it to astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com so we can slaughter it mercilessly on the show. Together, we can conquer astrology one question at a time. Do we want to move on to Pallas? Um. Yeah. So just a bit about Pallas uh, astronomically. Pallas kind of belongs to that category of protoplanet, similar to Ceres and Vesta, though Ceres is the only one that gets that minor planet designation. Uh, it's still pretty big. I believe it's the third largest object in the asteroid belt. It also has a very eccentric orbit. Um, it's highly inclined, so it's like way off the ecliptic and it has a similar ex, uh, eccentricity uh, to Pluto. You know, So sometimes it's much closer to the Sun than other, other times in its orbit. Uh, which does seem to show up in Pallas' significations, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, so Pallas is named after the goddess uh, Pallas Athena probably primarily known as just Athena so um, we'll probably end up using that kind of interchangeably but uh, Pallas Athena was the daughter of Jupiter or Zeus and is the goddess of strategic battle and wisdom It's also the patron goddess of the city of Athens so some versions of her mythology and it's another thing to keep in mind is that there's a lot of different stories um, about kind of all these goddesses but there isn't really a can't really say that there's a canon but you know they all kind of become relevant but some versions of the story have palaces not having a mother uh, but just emerged from zeus's head um, others have a story going that uh, zeus swallowed her mother uh, metis it's the goddess of counsel i believe maybe trying to Making like misremembering, but trying to cover up um, one of his affairs uh, from from Hera. No way. I, I, yeah, why, why would you want to do that? Zeus
1: having an affair.
0: Yeah. God, Zeus is a he's, he's a handful. But yeah, after swallowing her, you know, he got this headache, and on uh, some of the stories, some of the gods had to like split his head open with an axe to to get her out. But you know, despite all that. Um, Pallas Athena, or just Athena, really, um, at least initially, was Zeus's favorite child. He had a bunch of them, and it's kind of where you get some of the significations associated with Pallas of, you know, daddy's girls. Um, so, you know, where we get uh, Pallas Athena from, just the name. It's in one version of the story, Athena ended up killing uh, her best friend in a sparring match. Being sort of overcome with guilt. Um, she took the name in honor of her dead friend Pallas. Hence you get you know Pallas Athena or just Athena. Uh, another version though has Pallas as Athena's father interestingly who had tried to rape her and she killed him and took his skin and wore it as like a, a cape I think and <laughs> took his name as, as kind of like part of the trophy you know. Uh, which, while uh, maybe not a big part of the sort of canon that you know can't really say exists generally, Pallas is, uh, Athena is you know Zeus's daughter. It does you know seem to kind of play into some of the themes that show up with Pallas, um, which you can get kind of from other parts of the story, but relevant nonetheless. Anyway, um, Zeus made Pallas Athena along with his other son, Ares, uh god and goddess of war. like They're just kind of in charge of war generally. A palace is known to be responsible for some of the more uh, just the strategic and sort of thinking component. The idea of like honorable war, you know, gentleman's war, if you will, which it's more of a... Having a code. Yeah, a code of ethics uh, with war. That's the thing with Athena that really distinguishes... Her from Ares, well, Ares is, you know, kind of uh, just like bloodlust mode, just kind of rush into battle and just kind of go into berserker mode and, you know, slaughter everyone. Pallas, you know, would come up with a plan, have a strategy, and she was uh, distinctly not emotional um, about her approach to, to really anything <laughs> for the most part. <clears throat> she did have, you know, episodes of, of emotion, but that is kind of one of the... Um, important components of her significations is that sort of, um, kind of cold, uh, tactical kind of unemotional approach to things. But as a result, though, she actually repeatedly not only defeated, uh, Ares in, you know, many of their little spats, um, she, like ended up humiliating him on <laughs> multiple occasions. Uh, there is a theme there too of several stories, won't cover all of them, but um, where she really just, I mean, she ends up showing up a lot of of the other male gods. And then another uh, important part of Athena's mythology and eventually significations is that she was a big patron of a lot of heroes for mythology, like, um, crap, who was the one that killed Medusa? Do you remember?
1: Was that Perseus?
0: Perseus sounds right.
1: Yes, Perseus.
0: Yeah, Perseus. Yeah, and She has this uh, strange relationship with Perseus, uh, partly in that she is kind of responsible for creating uh, the monster that he uh, ended up being famous in mythology for for killing, and that was Medusa. Now, there's a lot of different versions of this, and you get kind of different versions of Athena, depending on which version of the story you go with. They all kind of become relevant, but um, in one version, basically, Pallas was so pissed that uh let's back up (laughs) medusa was originally a priestess and had you know certain sacred vows uh to uphold one of which uh was chastity and i believe it was poseidon who came down and uh raped medusa and as a result athena just kind of seeing you know that you know like oh she had sex with somebody so she broke her her vow chastity uh, she needs to be punished, so she turned her into a Gorgon and um, eventually sponsored the the hero that ended up taking her out. And there's another version where uh, Athena turned Medusa into a Gorgon uh, to give her the power to protect herself against, you know, other others who, who tried to assault her. Uh, so you kind of get mixed communications there, all of which, you know, potentially relevant. But so some of the key themes that come up with Palace center primarily on uh, women taking on traditionally male roles, but it seems also men in traditionally female roles. Um, women outperforming men and men uh, feeling threatened by, by women. Um, but you also get women uh, in positions of authority, in some cases seeking approval of male authority figures unconsciously or consciously. You also get the. What can come up, it seems like, is like emasculation, um, you know, men being, you know, defeated by women in a, in a sense, or um, what ultimately seems to kind of play out is a sort of questioning of what uh, the actual roles of men and women are, sort of challenging them or merging and blending them. Uh, androgyny seems to come up a lot with Pallas, as well as uh, just kind of the idea of, of redefining gender roles. And then, of course, you know, you got your, your strategic thinking. Is there any other um, significations you want to mention, Tristan?
1: Yeah, the the mythology of Athena is interesting to me. In terms of um, defying gender norms or gender roles, there's even a role reversal in the story of her birth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where yeah, When you think about it, Zeus gives birth, you know, this patriarchal, male sky god um you know the most masculine possible god you could think of in this cultural context uh kind of goes into labor you know in the story he has this horrible migraine and he needs one of the other gods to cleave his head open with an axe in order to give birth to his daughter that's an excellent so there's a Mm -hmm. role reversal even in that story um but yeah there's a Her relationships with women, with other women in her mythology are very interesting. They're not great. Um, There's the myth of Orestes. Um, Orestes is, you know, I won't tell the whole story from beginning to end because it's quite long and detailed, but essentially Orestes is put on trial for killing his own mother. And, you know, that, the erinyes the, Irines, the um, monstrous beings who will chase after people who've broken the laws of fate, uh, who've broken sort of the moral laws of the universe, go after Orestes for killing his mother. Um, but he gets this trial, and it's actually Athena who casts the deciding vote that Orestes is innocent. And the argument in favor of his innocence—I can't remember who delivers the argument originally. Um, it's a—it's a male figure who says, um, basically, the father is the only true parent of a child. That a woman is basically just a nurse. You know, the it's the father's seed that creates the child. So the woman is just like someone who takes care of it for a while, but not actually, she doesn't actually have any rights over the child. Um, And Athena, you know, the the vote is totally split and Athena hears this argument and she says, well, I was born without a mother. So this logic holds true as far as I'm concerned. And she casts a vote that Arrestus is innocent. That it's it's not killing a parent if he kills his own mother, basically, mm-hmm. which is
0: like a pretty upsetting. <laughs> tale. it's a, a pretty uh, also big jump. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch logically. It is it is a huge stretch? <laughs> I think the takeaway that I sort of take from that story and, and others is that um, given the you know very uh, patriarchal structure of greek society and uh, even you know mount olympus um they're pretty tolerant of athena you know taking on these these masculine male roles and part of that i think is that you know she is um you know supporting that uh, she's supporting the patriarchy she's, in a sense you know yeah she's, she's not questioning those rules she's really going along with them and really um at least in most stories um kind of part of that system sort of getting its approval yeah she's
1: she's kind of denying her own femininity and upholding the patriarchy there's uh another one of her famous myths is her weaving battle with arachne oh yeah that's a good one athena Not only was she the goddess of wisdom and warfare and uh, the city of Athens, but she was also a goddess of artisans and craftspeople, um, particularly weaving. So Arachne was an extremely skilled weaver and, you know, thought that she was better even than Athena. And they end up, you know, Athena gets really pissed off about that and they end up having kind of a, a weave off where they both create these beautiful tapestries. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, it does not end very well for Arachne. So it's just another is that the one example that's where she of, uh, turns her into a spider, right? Yes, she ends up well. Arachne originally hangs herself um, because she's so distraught over the results of her interaction with Athena and Athena actually takes some pity on her and turns her into a spider. Um, but nonetheless, it's just like in every single tale, I mean, she was Athena was also one of three goddesses who um, is involved in the, the story of the beginning of the Trojan War, um, where the goddess of chaos, Eris, throws... She's not invited to a party, basically, and in her anger, she uh, inscribes on a golden apple something like you know for the most beautiful and throws the golden apple into the party and Athena Aphrodite and Hera all fight over this apple and then Paris the hero has to choose you know between them for some reason I don't know all the details of the story but yeah it's just like every single story where Athena is involved with other women in some way she seems to be like not in a very um there there i i don't know maybe there are examples She, there's the example of palace like that was her best friend but she also killed her like it just never seems to end well for women when they have encounters with Athena.
0: (laughs) yeah no it's like an aside thought i I do kind of like to think of greek mythology as a little bit like a sitcom sometimes because it's almost like not about the story itself, it's about you know, putting the characters in this situation and mm-hmm. you know, learning something about the character or the character learn something about themselves, you know, in in that situation. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you're right. it It doesn't seem to, to go well uh, for for women around her. So, yeah, she does seem to really kind of deny a lot of the the traditional feminine roles like motherhood as well I mean she was one of the virgin goddesses um I think there was one situation where the story of where uh, I can't remember terrible with the names it was Hephaestus was it Hephaestus that tried to yeah
1: Hephaestus tried to yeah. have his way with her and she yeah. fought him off yeah she fought him off it was
0: almost kind of like it really makes Hephaestus sound really pathetic yeah he kind of um you know Blows one on, on her her thigh, and uh, she kind of like brushes it off, and well, with a, a rag, drops it on the ground, and that rag impregnates um, Gaia, right, the, the Earth, and births this baby, this kind of kind of half god. It's like a demigod baby, right? And it's not really her responsibility. I mean, it's not hers, uh, and even if, <laughs> if it was, she might not think that you know she. It's not actually her baby. If, nonetheless, she does take responsibility for it. So, I mean, there is like a um, uh, a highly principled element to Athena's personality, perspective, and approach to things. Um, but not maternal. She puts the baby uh, in a box. I think she I can't remember where she goes exactly. But she basically is like, all right, I'm leaving this box here. Uh, there's um, a snake in there who's going to, you know, nurture and, and protect this this baby. The snakes were very much associated with, like, wisdom. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense that she would have a a snake (laughs) raise this baby in a sort of Greek mythology logic sort of way. (laughs) But, uh, I guess there were some women around that saw her leave the box, and they hear a baby crying, and, you know, these women, um, even though Athena told them not to open the box, just leave it, um, they ended up opening the box, and Depending on which version of the story you hear, you know, they, one way or the other, they all end up dead, either eaten by the snake or, you know.
1: It really never ends well for women in these stories.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's just like, Athena, like, I don't have time for this, you know, like, yeah, I'll do, you know, the decent thing. (laughs) I'll give you a box, baby. Um, Granted, I think she does end up like training uh, the baby when he gets older it's just very um it's just not maternal the the instinct isn't mm-hmm. terribly maternal with with Pallas.
1: Yeah, it's more dutiful. It's like well Hephaestus is not going to take responsibility for this because men in this culture do not um so you yeah, know why would, why would I, I guess that? I'll do something about it so that this baby doesn't just die. It's really more of a sense of moral obligation than it is, you know, an actual desire to
0: nurture the child. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's what I find um, just interesting about the whole story it, it, or what, you know, it makes me wonder what exactly it was, um, what it triggered, you know, with the Greeks, like what sort of things got brought up? Because, I mean, the, the Athenians, at least, they named their their city after her. And this is, uh, you know, a level of research I haven't gotten into, but um, I think generally, I mean, you get what maybe kind of from a modern perspective is, um, you know, a, a woman who doesn't really recognize the the distinction between you know male and female roles at least not as far as they applied to her Um, that she you know in a sense like oh well if men aren't responsible for nurturing and doing this and that with babies like why should I you know which is fair I kind of uh, find it (laughs) I don't know uh, something about the figure of Pallas Athena that really sort of forces At least maybe from the modern perspective, um, men to challenge, you know, their own kind of traditional role. Like, well, maybe if I'm having this negative reaction to what she's doing, maybe I should be, you know, be held to the same standard, you know, as maybe Mm -hmm. I'm holding women to, you know. Did we want
1: to maybe get into some examples? Did you want to share your own personal example?
0: Yeah, so... Uh, Pallas is really um, the one that I would say is most responsible for selling me on, on asteroids, uh, at least initially. And now I can see them. So I have um, Pallas uh, in an exact conjunction with Mars in my chart. Uh, it's within 10 minutes. It's a very tight one. And uh, for me, you know, Mars rules my, my 10th and my 5th houses. Um, You know, it's pretty connected to my chart, either by aspect or rulership. Um, But I found uh, some of the symbolism there really hard to ignore, especially when, you know, while I can maybe see some of the themes more broadly in my chart, um, the palace element really seemed to add some specificity. Uh, Like, for example, be one of the really kind of simple ones. is that uh, Mars rules my, it's the dispositor of my moon. Uh, Moon being associated with the mother. And also rules my 10th house, so that does traditionally get associated with the mother sometimes. Which Not one that I always used, um, but could be some connection there. But my mother uh, was a lieutenant colonel in the army. You know, another element of that that shows up uh, quite prominently Uh, Having Mars, you know, ruling my fifth house, just like the house of children is, um, you know, when my son was first born, you know, his mom was going to college and I ended up taking on a lot of the maybe traditionally roles traditionally prescribed to women, you know, or to to mothers, you know, we're getting a lot of Mr. Mom jokes at the time. Um, And not that that's uncommon at all these days, but, you know, ruling my 10th, I was a massage therapist for about 10 years and that is a traditionally um more of a female dominated industry and even you know astrology is probably you know both the the consumers and the practitioners of astrology are probably a majority of women my partner Megan she has palace uh hanging out with her her first house ruler and while you know she may not necessarily recognize it i definitely see her as a very strong uh, kind of palace type, you know, a kind of strong-willed and assertive woman who's not, you know, afraid to stand up for herself. I would say that those uh, types of women have been a big part of my life, and and I guess I, you know, maybe seeing that conjunction maybe made me realize how um, much that's a very distinct part of my life that is maybe not something that I tend to take gra- for granted but something that um is maybe not the norm for most people.
1: Do you want to tell the story about shooting your friend in the teeth? Cuz that was my
0: favorite. <laughs> that was the clincher for me. Uh yeah, when I was a kid, um I really loved playing uh airsoft, right? Those little um not quite BB guns, but you know, you you shoot, and, and they hurt, and, you know, as long as you wear goggles, you're probably fine. Um, but on two occasions, I accidentally shot two different friends' uh, front teeth out with the airsoft gun, leaving giant gaping holes in, in the front of their mouth. Uh, in both cases, their parents had to run them off to, you know, emergency uh, dental um I don't know. I guess there's emergency dentists, but I remember they had to leave immediately, <laughs> and uh, nobody ever wanted to play airsoft with me again. And I also felt extremely guilty. Fortunately, I didn't get you know the worst case scenario of that. Of you know, I, I didn't kill any friends, but um, I I did. You didn't have to take on their names yeah. in front of yours
1: in in honor yeah. of accidentally killing them with airsoft guns.
0: Yeah, it, it also probably bears noting that, that Mars uh, is in an overcoming square with a bunch of 11th house planets, um, which just kind of adds adds to that. <laughs> yeah, Pallas, Athena,
1: and Mars are literally overcoming the planets in Kyle's 11th house, which represent friendship.
0: Yeah, so, you know... Don't be afraid to be friends with me, though, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't lost any teeth yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah. You haven't played Airsoft with me yet. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is part of the fun uh, and excitement, though. Yeah, that's, that's the thing, is I'm like Palace, you know? I uh, when If you get in a sparring match with me, uh, it just goes, I'm just going to full warrior mode, and, <laughs> and you might die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that's another uh, big palace thing in my God, there's just so many. Uh, I love strategy games, um, strategy video games. I, you know, my dad... Fifth house. Fifth, fifth house. You know, my dad introduced me to them. Um, I even went to some really nerdy war game conventions, uh, and I just, I just love it. I love strategy, double chess, anything that has to do with outwitting your opponent. Uh, it's great. Yeah. This so. is my,
1: my delineation. Now, if you have Mars conjunct palace ruling <laughs> your fifth house,
0: this is the way you like to have fun. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. And that's another part of it too, is it's just, uh, tell everybody all my, my personal secrets, Mars is in my, my eighth house and it's, you know, the eighth house is, uh, traditionally called the, the idol place. And one way that, you know, Mars conjunct palace in my eighth house is, has maybe manifested that signification is, is one way that, uh, I, um, have maybe gotten myself into trouble by not doing the things I'm supposed to do, uh, is by playing, you know, strategy video games instead. It's <laughs> <This is>, uh, <laughs> a problem of mine for a while that I really had to, I had to pry myself away. Still, you know, if a really good game is coming out, I, I can't even, I like, like, I, can't look at uh any previews for it because i'm you know if i start playing that my productivity is is just gone for, you know, <laughs> for a good month so yeah that's uh that's the other thing it, it's you know uh malefics you know they they not everything they deliver is is awful um you know some of it's rather mundane or, or even fun like there's nothing Wrong with uh, liking strategy, war games. Um, just, you know, tending to overdo it, which I think maybe a lot of people with Mars ruled fifth houses uh, might have to be careful of.
1: Not me. <laughs>
0: Not I never overdo anything. His exalted Mars ruling. And I think that's the thing with exalted malefics is they're just no fun. You know, they're, they're, you don't have to
1: have any I mean, fun I with was... them. I was fun when I was younger, but it was very much to my detriment. So I just, I mean, that's that's the thing with Mars is going from one extreme to the other. I was a typical Mars ruled fifth house person and partied way too hard and was just hell bent on self-destruction. <laughs> um, and then I, the pendulum swung to the opposite extreme. And now, you know, I have responsible fun. I have Mars. I have appropriately Mars and Capricorn fun, but I had to explore the opposite extreme first before that happened. Now who knows? Maybe it will swing the other way.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, your midlife crisis or something. No, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I think maybe just a general lesson about about Malivics is that yeah, they they just tend towards extremes. You know, I yeah. similarly, you know, after becoming a parent, especially, uh, really had to rein in, you know, some of those. Uh, Marginal fifth house activities in order to be a responsible parent should i maybe get into
1: palace and catherine hepburn's chart yes do so catherine hepburn as i mentioned earlier uh, had scorpio rising and she had the moon and palace conjunct in taurus in her seventh house um opposing, you know, Juno, who I discussed earlier. And so, you know, again, we're sort of um, fleshing out and giving more detail to what her relationships were like, um, being someone who was very independent and very much married to her work in a lot of ways. Um, And, you know, Athena being a virgin goddess, um, you know, being someone who, you know, didn't answer to a husband. But I think you know, Pallas being conjunct the moon, um, really came across in her personality. She was known for being very spirited, um, and her the characters that she played assertive too.
0: Yes, especially for her, for her time period.
1: Yeah, I mean she Not was afraid to butt heads with. Um, she was born in 1907.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, she was very known for. I mean, she was in, in, actively involved in the um, um, like women's suffrage and stuff, right? Or was it? Yeah, was it her? Her mom. Both of her
1: parents were very progressive, and her mother would go to votes for women demonstrations, and Catherine would join her mom at those demonstrations. Yeah, um, the household really encouraged freedom of speech, and you know. You know, open debate on various topics. Um, her parents were actually like, they would get in some trouble in their community for being so progressive. They caused a bit of a stir. Mm-hmm. So, and she, she was described as a tomboy as a child. Um, she actually had a, a male name for herself. She would call herself Jimmy and cut her hair mm-hmm. short. And her dad taught all of the children um, various athletic skills Swimming, running, wrestling—all that kind of Um, stuff—and he taught the kids. Daddy's girl was she? Maybe a little. I don't know. She stayed. From what I've read, she remained close to both of her parents uh, throughout her life. Mm -hmm. But her her dad taught the kids to play golf, and that in particular uh, became one of Catherine's early passions. Um, at one point she was taking daily lessons and she got so good that she reached the semifinal of the Connecticut young women's golf championship. Mm. She also, um, she really liked, lo- liked swimming and she used to take ice cold swims every morning saying that the bitter, the medicine, the better it is for you, which just really, okay, that yeah. really feels Athena to me. That's, that is. <laughs> yeah uh thinking of She-Ra I don't
0: know if you're familiar I
1: I really need to watch that show
0: female equivalent of He-Man yeah. Yeah,
1: the really like recent reboot I've seen <laughs> no. a couple episodes of it and it's really good but I haven't I haven't seen enough of it Um, my, my favorite there's uh, this beautiful image of Catherine Hepburn in one of her early roles literally dressed up in this like mythological Greek Amazon garb, so like just literally <laughs> yeah. looking like Athena. Um, so this early role was a film called *The Warrior's Husband*, and this film tells the story of the Amazons um, who possessed the sacred girdle of Diana. And so, in this society that's portrayed in this film. Um, women actually play the traditionally male role in their society, uh, where they have all the positions of political power and they're the warriors and it's the men who stay at home and care for children and play sort of a subordinate role. So the drama in this film is that, you know, Hercules steals the girdle of Diana and that's when this role reversal happens and then men come to take on the positions of power in a society it's just—it's so fitting.
0: It's just too perfect. I, I don't know. And it's—it's uh, it's kind of like the moon ruling. It's her fifth house, right? Um. Or is it her ninth?
1: Ninth house is Cancer.
0: Ninth. Yeah, that's right. I mean, she had some pretty uh, strong political beliefs too. Was that recall? Yeah. I feel like a lot of my thoughts too are coming from the watch the movie The Aviator. Uh, Cate Blanchett did a great job portraying Katherine Hepburn. But there's a scene where Howard Hughes is kind of meeting her family for the first time and like they're just having this like really um impassioned like political discussion at the table. Like very like liberal liberally oriented one. And I think Howard Hughes being more conservative, like it's like really I don't know, gets like really upset about it. But um regardless, uh yeah, that it's I feel like Palace is just having having her way with uh, Catherine Hepburn's moon there. <laughs> yeah, there's so
1: many of her roles exemplify this archetype. Uh, there is I know yeah. I I spent a bunch of today just looking at clips of Catherine Hepburn in her various roles, and now I feel like I need to go mm-hmm. deeper into the rabbit hole and just binge a whole bunch of Catherine Hepburn movies. There's one yeah. uh, well known movie she was in called Adam's Rib. And she played a defense attorney and the person she was defending in this film was a woman accused of shooting her cheating husband. And the drama in the movie comes from, um, the prosecuting lawyer actually being the husband of Catherine Hepburn's character. So they end up kind of on opposite sides of this legal battle, um, about this woman who's been accused of killing her husband for infidelity, it's just—it's very modern-day Palace Athena, <laughs> I mean, yeah. You get Juno on the yeah. ascendant
0: there too. It's like, well, in the in the opposing the debate, I don't know. That's
1: yeah, that's yeah. There's a lot. I mean, all all three of other than Ceres, although Ceres is still, you know, pretty close to to Jupiter in the ninth house in Catherine Hepburn's chart, so it's not a non event in her chart but um, Juno and Pallas and Vesta are all very she has one asteroid conjunct each of the big three in her chart. yeah so it's just like all those goddess archetypes are really kind of showing up through her body of work.
0: yeah I yeah it's nuts. Well I have another um, palace example. So you have more Ooh. to say on Catherine Hepburn.
1: Oh no, I think I think we've I think we've covered her pretty well.
0: Yeah, so uh the example that I have here is Kesha. Uh Kesha has palace uh within a degree of conjunction with her ascendant. Now technically it's an out of sign conjunction. P- uh, palace is at 20, 29 degrees, thirty-four minutes uh sentence about uh, 33 minutes sounds like a degree um but in the case of like an angle uh, you know you can definitely see planets even if they're out of sign conjunct uh the degree of the ascendant or the midheaven or, or one of the, the prominent angles they're still very very visible. So with Kesha uh, I'm glad you brought up Pallas being also the god of, of craftsmanship. Uh, you know, being highly skilled in, in your given craft. Um, Kesha, actually, very skilled songwriter. She wrote I believe, over 200 songs for other artists. Um, some of them hits, I think, uh, a couple by for Britney Spears. The names are escaping me. Um, she also, you know, wrote or co-wrote all the songs on her first two albums. Uh, one of her albums was called Warrior. It's so perfect. I know. it, And that's what's interesting, too, is is that Mars, you know, is not prominent in her chart, at least not, you know, visible, super visible. It's in Taurus, it's in uh, the sixth house. But she does have a very Mars quality uh, that comes out in her her performances, her sort of attitude. Um, and it is very much, you know, rebelling against a, a lot of traditional gender norms. You know, I think one of the things I always sort of appreciated about Kesha's uh, her music videos and songs is just very um. She sort of takes on a ma- a male role, in, in a traditionally male role. In you know, she, like what TikTok, which you know was the longest running number one hit by a female artist since 1971, back in 2009. Uh, and it's like waking up in the morning feeling like P Diddy, you know. In the interview with her, she said that. Lying, You know, I I woke up in the morning one day and I was feeling like a pimp, you know, which just like that. I don't know the traditional male role of being a pimp or whatever, but just like feeling, you know, that empowered kind of sense of I can do what I want that, you know, maybe traditionally was reserved for for men. Uh, Her sort of donning that and taking that and owning it and empowering, you know, other women to feel that way, too, and it be okay. Kesha he is also openly pansexual. I believe she's also served as a um, officiator of many same-sex and opposite-sex marriages. She's like a pretty um, outspoken advocate for uh, marriage equality. And just a side note: it's a, a not palace thing. It's actually a series thing. She has series um, conjunct Uranus in her first house and one of the more challenging significations of series is eating disorders and she did uh struggle with bulimia for a period of time but maybe one of the more interesting and complicated uh things that seem to show up for her is her i believe over decade-long public legal battle with dr luke her producer i know i it's such a complicated case that I, I don't want to be on it too much um seems to me like the the main dispute is you know that dr luke raped her did all kinds of se- uh sexual psychological abuse um and really has been kind of using his uh leverage you know from his powerful position to kind of keep her in the contract and actually more recently this is a big story that i <laughs> i'm not going to do justice but uh I believe the initial rape allegations were dropped by the courts uh so it became a, a countersuit where yeah, dr luke uh countersued her for defamation and breach of contract and then um you know, i believe that i mean there's been a lot of countersuits involved um between both of them and i think what i find interesting the most relevant is this has been going on for a long time uh, at one point Dr. Luke did try to um, make a deal with her, like, "Hey, drop the rape allegations. I will drop, you know, my breach of contract countersuit and everything." And she's like, "No, I'd rather, um, you know, it's about like the principle. It's about, you know, getting justice. It's not about like what's convenient for her." Um, Just seemed like a very Athena mindset. Is that you know the that that is why part partially why. You know, the Athenians chose her as their their deity, as the you know, the justice seeking uh element of of Athena. Um granted she did have some some nasty revenge components, she could get riled up, but um for the most part, I mean she tried to be be fair. Um nonetheless, um you know, a lot of this was going on during the Me Too movement and she did receive, you know, like a ton of support from the artistic community and just the public at large. Uh, she seems like it recently, the, Dr. Luke kind of lost his suit due to a new law that is really trying to address um, the way that uh, you know, which rich white men uh, are able to use the system, the legal system, to basically barrage people with uh, counter suits and, and legal technicalities that keep them from, you know, speaking out against them. Uh, and that has been working to her advantage. And, you know, it doesn't look like the, the final outcome of, of these legal battles are, are anywhere near over, but you know, it does seem to have turned in her favor, you know, over the last few years, you kind of get that theme of, I you know, just really challenging, um, the, Sort of structural authority that that men have and recognizing that imbalance and seeking to, to rectify that. You know, that shit ain't right, right? Damn
1: right. I'm thinking about the way mythic archetypes evolve over time relative to the culture they find themselves in. And as people start questioning you know, patriarchal norms and start fighting against systemic discrimination against women and um, non-binary people and basically, you know, people who are not straight cis men who've, you know, dominated um, our social institutions for quite a long time, um, that the archetype of Athena sort of evolves alongside that. I'm actually... Uh, Personally, a polytheist and a question that often gets asked, you know, of people who work with, you know, some of these actual deities is, you know, how can you um, have a relationship with a deity who's done these horrible things in their stories and... Um, That sort of idea of mythic literalism, that the stories of the gods are literally the deeds of the gods. Um, I don't think that's necessarily how ancient people understood their myths, and it's certainly not how I think most... I mean, I can't speak for all polytheists, but, um, you know, I don't meet many polytheists who take the myths literally. It's more a case of, you know, people have an experience of something that seems sacred or divine and they give it a name, but then they have to refer back to their own culture in order to flesh out what they've experienced. And so if they have this experience of a divine sense of female authority um, within an extremely patriarchal, extremely misogynistic culture, you end up with these kinds of stories where like there's a bit of conflict inherent in these in the classical Athena Stories where there's a kind of rejection of other women that goes on in these stories, um, and I guess I'm, you know, looking at palace in actual birth charts of you know modern people um, mm-hmm. makes me kind of hopeful that that um, our experience of that archetype is starting to
0: change. Well, you think of, like, how that archetype would function in Greek society, um, yeah. which is very patriarchal and male-dominated, you know, how that archetype functions is, you know, just taking on the, to some degree, the qualities of patriarchal structure it's in, you know, and that being sort of how she uh, is able to exercise the power that she has, you know, and even yeah, Zeus, like getting the validation from her father her only parent for doing that you know there's a lot of uh, motivation there for for her to to keep supporting that system and you know i could definitely see how that theme can show up in people's charts as well but like you were saying kind of the evolving cultural landscape you know there's like versions of these mm-hmm. myths that predate even the greeks and um that you know were very different depending on the, the context. I think there are a lot of astrologers now who are working with kind of pre-patriarchal versions of, of the myths. Uh, which is not mm-hmm. something I know enough about to to speak on, but there's definitely a, a lot of nuance to to the way these archetypes can be used.
1: Yeah it's like in in an extremely patriarchal system, you know, the only way for a woman to have power is to align herself with that system and against okay. other women, which you see in the yeah. classical mythology around Athena. Um, you know, you see illustrated really clearly in the myth of Orestes in that trial where, you know, she's she says, you know, that in, in that myth, she says, you know, I'm on the side of male supremacy, essentially.
0: Nice. Um, yeah.
1: And then, you know, you see figures like Catherine Hepburn or like Kesha Um, who are not necessarily aligning themselves with, you know, the dominant male institution in order to have power. They're claiming it for themselves. Yeah. So that's a, a big shift away from, you know, the only way I can have power is to you know kind of side with the patriarchy versus no i'm going to claim my own power which it is you know my birthright to have this power and to have agency and it is over and against the
0: patriarchy instead of siding with it. Mhm. I think that's that's a really good point cuz so much of the Athena archetype is just the a word like entitlement gets you know has like negative connotations into it but like that was just Athena from the start like that was who Athena was, you know, she was born that's... a
1: warrior, clad, fully clad in yeah. armor. She emerged she from Zeus's yeah. head, wielding a spear. Like fully she grown. Was just yeah, powerful <laughs> right from the get
0: go. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, with like, you know, Kesha, one of the things so attractive about her is that, yeah, she does have that. Like she exudes that, like I'm entitled to this power. Like it's mm-hmm. not up for debate or to be questioned. It just is. And yep, I think that's part of a, uh, and what the the archetype is about.
1: Should we move on to Vesta?
0: Yeah. Good idea.
1: All right. I will start with some astronomical notes on Vesta, um, which is the brightest asteroid visible from Earth. It can at times be faintly visible to the naked eye, Um, Even though it's not the biggest of the asteroids, it's extremely reflective, which is kind of neat because Vesta is the goddess of the hearth fire. So the brightness and reflectiveness of the asteroid is symbolically relevant here. Um, There's another fun astronomical fact about Vesta that makes it unique. Um, And I'm quoting from the Max Planck journal here. Um, The asteroid Vesta is unique. Unlike all other minor planets that orbit the sun within the main belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, Vesta has a differentiated inner structure. A crust of cooled lava covers a rocky mantle and a core made of iron and nickel, quite similar to the terrestrial planets Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Scientists therefore believe this onion-like asteroid to be a protoplanet, a relic a relic from an early phase of planet formation more than four and a half billion years ago. All other protoplanets either accumulated to form planets or broke apart due to violent collisions. And another shorter way of making this point, uh, just from Wikipedia, is Vesta is the only known remaining rocky protoplanet with a differentiated interior of the kind that formed the terrestrial planets. So it's uh, it's a really interesting piece of the history of our solar system.
0: I thought Ceres and um, Pallas were both proto protoplanets.
1: Maybe they are, and it's just that they're not different kind? Yeah, they don't they don't have that differentiated interior that makes them, you know, the same kind of protoplanet that formed the Earth or Mercury.
0: It's more like reading the differentiated interior as being like the main thing. But, yeah, I, no.
1: yeah, and I haven't you know really <laughs> that that's okay. I haven't really figured out you know how what this might symbolize if we're trying to draw some symbolism from the astronomy, but you know mm-hmm. any listeners are interested um, in what that might mean, what sort of meaning we might attach to it.
0: there it is. sort of thinking about how, um we'll get into maybe getting ahead a little, but now uh, Vesta, the goddess, doesn't really have any images of her. Almost like, uh, really just kind of represented as like an object, like a a torch. Yeah. Almost like a, I don't know, like a disembodied planet.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe, I think the cult of Vesta was the last one when Rome was Christianized to be totally disbanded. So maybe there's a bit of a last one standing kind of symbolism there.
0: Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And there is also a group of smaller asteroids with a composition similar to Vesta um, that were probably created from a huge impact, and they hang around in the same area, and they are called Vestoids. So I find oh, that very fitting since Vesta the cult, cult of Vesta yeah, <laughs> has, well, not just any cult, but has a dedicated... Group of people mm-hmm. who are constantly attending her flame at all times, the Vestal Virgins. Vestoids,
0: Vestal Virgins. Yep. That's that's interesting. I like that.
1: Yeah, I thought that was fun. So mythologically, Vesta uh, was the Roman goddess of the hearth, home, and family, and her Greek equivalent is Hestia, who is also a goddess of hearth, home, and family. There isn't a lot of mythology around this goddess in either one of these iterations, um, but the cult to Vesta in ancient Rome is pretty fascinating. Um, like Kyle was saying, the there wasn't really like a human sort of personification for Vesta; she was mostly just symbolized by her sacred fire, um, which in the temple to Vesta was never allowed to go out, so the Vestal virgins were tasked with maintaining this sacred fire. And it was was symbolic of the whole state of Rome. Vesta was a virgin goddess. Um, I believe in the Greek myth, Hestia uh, refuses to marry anybody. Interestingly, in Roman religion, she was given the title of mother, Um, And she has some connection with agriculture. So sort of an interesting paradox there of like a virgin goddess who's also referred to as mother. Um,
0: Yeah, that overlap with Cirrus a little bit.
1: Yeah. So the Vestal Virgins um, were chosen when they were children between the ages of six and ten and taken from their families Um, to serve for a 30-year contract in the Temple of Vesta. And their duties were tending the sacred fire. Um, They made mola salsa, which was a salted flour that was used to consecrate Roman sacrifices, like in public sacrifices. So in a sense, the, the Vestal Virgins were like the state's housekeepers. They were serving this kind of domestic role, but that role was for the entire state and not just for one individual
0: household. And... Yeah, wasn't it, was an, it was like the fire went out? Like, that was a signal like the doom of Rome or something?
1: Well, it signaled at the very least that Vesta had abandoned Rome, which would be a yeah, bad thing. And mm-hmm. if any one of the Vestals allowed the fire to go out, she was punished. Yeah.
0: Quite brutally.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> Like many things in the ancient world, uh, it was an interesting lifestyle. Um, The Vestal Virgins had a lot of rights that other women did not have in ancient Roman society. They were very, very, very honored. Um, When they became priestesses, they were legally emancipated from their father's authority. And, you know, in public places, um, they were given the right of way at public games or performances. They had a place of honor that was reserved for them. Um, they did not need to take an oath in order to give evidence. Um, it was customary for anyone giving evidence to swear an oath. And in the case of the vestals, their word was just trusted without question. Um, they were entrusted with wills and state documents. Um, the penalty for injuring them was death and they could free condemned prisoners or slaves just by touching them. If a person uh, sentenced to death happened to see a Vestal on their way to being executed, they were automatically pardoned. So they mm-hmm. had this like very unique and sort of powerful position in society.
0: It's interesting to me that you know, the Vestal Virgins being, like, the tenders of the attendees of the sacred fire. Um, attendees of this, like, sacred thing, which, you know, kind of by proxy makes them sacred. But then, you know, anything that, it's almost like anything they touch uh, or see or, you know, anything that, like, interacts with them kind of becomes sacred as well. You know, like, it makes you think of, um, like, signing an autograph or something. Like, you know, somebody famous signs... Um, a basketball, suddenly that basketball goes from, you know, a $10 value to like a $10,000 value.
1: Yeah, the when the 30 year contract was done, the Vestals were released from their duties, and they were given permission to marry, and they were very sought after. Mm. Um, it, uh, marriages uh, were generally arranged with, you know, people who were well to do, and it was supposed to be very good fortune to marry a former Vestal Virgin. Another sort of interesting fact, there are some, you know, along with the sort of paradox of the goddess Vesta being at once a virgin, but also associated, I guess, to some extent with fertility if she was being referred to with the title of mother, um, the Vestal Virgins tended the cult of a sacred phallus that acted as a token of the safety of Rome. So this sacred phallic image was contained, I guess, in the temple, um, and they looked after it. And they also hung an effigy of this sacred phallus on underneath the chariot of chariot of a general um, to protect him. So there's some weird. Uh like there were a lot of phallic amulets that were used as protective magic in ancient Rome, but there is this interesting connection between the Vestal Virgins and that particular image, which is interesting because, you know, when I was reading Demetra's book on the asteroid goddesses. She talked about seeing clients who had Vesta very prominent in their charts, and she was kind of expecting them, um, you know, to be more, not necessarily celibate, but I guess, you know, leaning a little more that way. And what she actually found were a lot of stories of um, exploring, like, non-traditional sexual relationships, So there's a sort of, like, the whole issue of sexuality and, you know, the whole spectrum of it, I think, is very much connected to the Vesta archetype in astrology.
0: Yeah. uh, Like, almost think about it as just kind of presenting this idea of um, sexuality and sacredness. And, you know, what, I don't know, you think about just the myth, um, the Vestal, maybe not the myth, but the Vestal Virgins themselves, you know, they gave up. Basically, in order to get the privileges, some of which, you know, are just what were afforded to, to men in general, but uh, to get like extra privileges, um, but sort of the price for emancipation, you know, from um, being like subordinate to men was giving up their sexuality. In yeah, a sense. like
1: giving up um, any sort of intimacy with men. I mean, literally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's like, oh, well. <laughs> There's something weird about that, and it does seem to be a recurring theme, once like in society. I don't know the the idea that uh, from a lot of men's per- perspective, like, oh, once I can't have sex with you anymore, uh, now I can respect you and treat you as an equal.
1: Yeah, that it is something that you see. I mean, it's still a problem in our culture now.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, just to to specify, you know what I meant earlier by non-traditional sexual relationships. Um, what Demetra said she noticed with her clients was like specifically non-monogamy or, you know, being intimate outside of a like partnered relationship. Um, which is interesting because mm-hmm. it's like there's still intimacy going on, but it's happening outside of, you know, the traditional monogamous relationship with one other person. Um, which is obviously not virginity, but it's still it's still kind of like the virgins were the vestal virgins were exceptional because they were not married and they did not have, you know, this sort of socially sanctioned sexual relationship.
0: Yeah. It's something I would like to maybe to just to study Vesta more would be to like, see how, you know, a prominent Vesta plays out uh, in the context of like what aspects it's making with other planets. Mm-hmm. You know, I would imagine that the, any other planets, even like just a sign-based configuration, is going to maybe influence that planet, similar to the way it would, you know, with the the traditional planets.
1: I do have Vesta in the first house in my own chart, and one of the areas of emphasis, uh, Dimitra George, puts on Vesta in her in her work is devotion. Um, having a devotional spirituality. Mm. And that actually very much rings true for me. Um, I've been... Yeah, don't you do some of that like tradi- uh, that devotional practice? Just a little. You know, that devotional
0: practice to the, the gods? Just,
1: just a bit. I've been unusually religious <laughs> for my entire adult life. And there's no... I wasn't raised particularly religious, and I tend to be pretty skeptical. So it's just odd that I keep kind of getting pulled into it, but I was actually, um, I worked in the church for about three years. Um, and I was pretty active in the church in the years prior to that. And I have always had, you know, I I practiced some, uh, non-traditional spirituality when I was younger as well, like witchcraft and dabbled in paganism a bit. So whether I was, um, following a pagan or a Christian spiritual path, I have always had an altar in my home. And, you know, the center of Vesta's cult is the hearth, is the the domestic area of devotion and sacrifice. Um, I've, I've never not had a space for that in my home, and it has never not been sort of, like, the most important part of my home um, and an area of central focus. But, like, maybe the most... And I do like have a tendency towards very ecstatic religious experiences, which Demetra talks about in her book too, as being a very Vesta type signification. Um, to the point that at one point in my life, maybe and I guess like four years ago, something like that, um, I was dating someone. Um, it wasn't really serious yet, but I sat at my altar to pray one night and ended up having an ecstatic religious experience. And after having that experience, I just didn't, I did not want to be in a relationship. I just wanted to, to do my practice and to pray. And I ended up um, leaving that relationship And there was a period of time where I seriously considered like taking a vow of celibacy and just being like, I don't, I don't really feel like being in relationships at all. Like I'm good to just, I'm really getting my emotional and spiritual needs met from my devotional practice. So it felt kind of like a distraction. And like, as a kid, I used to think about, you know, joining a monastery and stuff like that. Ultimately that did not end up being the path I took, but It's kind of interesting that I've got Vesta in the first first house and that was at least a serious consideration at some point in my life, which is maybe odd. Like, I don't think a lot of people uh, seriously consider walking that particular path.
0: I I think that your Vesta uh, example uh, is really maybe one of the ones that sold me on Vesta was the one that sold me on Vesta because, you know, we do have very similar charts. Not that they're exactly the same. But, uh, like, I have Vesta, and it's in the second house. It's, like, the one asteroid that's not really doing anything. It's, you know, my one little bit of fire, which seems appropriate, but <laughs> I want to keep it tucked away in my second house. <laughs> but that's something that, like, yeah, I have no... I've never been... Uh, <laughs> I just have the cynical part uh, <laughs> of religion. <laughs> I do not have any any of the devotional practice uh, element. But, um, I don't know, what you're saying But kind of makes me think about... Um, You know, the idea of, you know, taking time, which is not, like, an uncommon practice for people, like, take time out of a relationship to, like, find yourself again,
1: right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: And thinking, yeah, about, like, you know, what, um, it's like the the price of intimacy is sort of, I don't know, it's like you're you're mixing your fire with someone else's, you know. Is it sacred anymore or, you know, or does it... um, I don't know. Like Vesta, like brings up this question of asking you, like, what is your sacred space? You know, is that something physical or is it something deeper? Is it something that you would be willing to
1: share or potentially sacrifice in order to be in a relationship with somebody else? Um, yeah. Yeah. As there's a lot.
0: Can you maintain that in the context of, of relationship?
1: Yeah, behavior? exactly. Maintaining your own, and I mean that's that's also something, Demetra. Um, emphasizes in her interpretation of Vesta as this kind of idea of being self-contained and independent. Um, So, you know, perhaps there's Vesta might bring up some questions around that because when you are in a relationship, what is yours becomes your partner's and what is your partner's becomes yours, your lives start to mix together. And, you know, you can still maintain some independence in a relationship, but um, you become more interdependent and the, you know, line uh, or where I start and where my partner begins, you know, that isn't always totally clear when your lives are really meshed together. Um, it's a, another asteroid that is prominent in the chart of Catherine Hepburn, who is just just all the asteroids going on in her chart. Uh, Vesta was conjunct her son within a couple of degrees in the seventh house. And I know there's been some, I've heard some sort of like reinterpretations of the concept of the Virgin as being sort of like a self-contained woman or like someone who is independent, essentially not controlled by a man within a patriarchal society. Um, you know, like the Vestal Virgins had this sort of unique position where they were not being controlled by a husband or a father, um, the way other women in their society were. And they were granted, um, a certain amount of respect and power that other women also were not. So, yeah, there's, there is that sort of like attempt to, um, maybe reinterpret that archetype as being, you know, the, the woman who does not um, need a man who is um, independent, who's not controlled by anyone but herself. And, you know, Catherine Hepburn, as I've discussed at length, was fiercely independent. And um, I don't believe she ever had any children. Um, Her marriage was brief, Mm. you know, it's a lot of um, There's some overlap between Pallas and Vesta, obviously, both of them being virgin goddesses and both of them being sort of like uniquely positioned in their relationship to men. But even though like they have that power, it's still very much happening within a patriarchal context in their mythology and in the cult of Vesta that happened in ancient Rome. So that also, I guess, opens yeah. up the question of like, how do we work with these archetypes now, like how do we kind of free those archetypes from being under the thumb of the patriarchy?
0: Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, and it does make sense. Like, um, the Hepburn, she stay married.
1: Or? No, it was very brief. Yeah. And then she, um, you know, had a relationship, but was not married. And, you know, still maintained a f- fair amount of independence in that relationship.
0: Yeah, that, Yeah, that, that's interesting because uh, it's like maintaining, um, you know, like you said, that they're women trying to maintain that, um, that independence and, um, I don't know, it's like, I want to say like dignity or their, their authority or their, you know, um, kind of prominence in the world. But in a you know male dominated world, and how do you preserve that fire? Uh, I mean, when you look at the Vestal Virgins, you preserve that by by becoming a virgin, you know, by by not allowing um, men in your sacred temple, if you will. Yeah. Even in the case of the Vestals, you know they.
1: They were essentially abducted as children by the state. The state took them away from their parents as children, and (laughs) they had no say but any... They're they're still under the... Yeah, they're still definitely (laughs) under the the control of men. It's just that they're under the control of more privileged men um, who've given them Mm -hmm. this unique religious role that comes with a certain amount of power. But it doesn't mean that, you know,
0: they're they're in control of their situation in any way. Mm, So... I don't know if you have more to say on Catherine Hepburn, but it seems like a really good segue into my example. Let's hear it. So you have Mae West, which if you're not familiar, very famous actress um, from like the 1920s, 1930s, into the 1940s. Mae West has Taurus rising uh, with Vesta exactly conjunct her ascendant, as well as Ceres uh, within just a couple degrees, and then Venus ruling the ascendant in cancer applying pretty closely to juno so all those three very active in her chart uh, very prominent may west a bit of a more than a bit of a (laughs) a sex symbol huge sex symbol during that time period it's really known for uh it's kind of like very scandalously sort of flouting sort of prescribed roles of of women uh, of, of modesty right she was an early uh, gay rights activist and uh, women's liberation supporter she was very outspoken about her views and she really kind of made her career uh she like utilized the controversy the controversy that she stirred up she said i believe you know, Well, it's thing she was known for her her quips you know she's very um clever and uh her kind of body double entendres you know um just kind of like oozed sexuality. Uh, but she said, I believe in censorship. I made a fortune out of it. <laughs> and one of the um, examples of that is early on in her career in the 1920s. She wrote, produced, and directed uh, very risque, but commercially successful plays um, in New York on Broadway, titles of which include you know, The Drag, The Wicked Age, Pleasure Man, and The Constant Sinner.
1: Oh, I love this.
0: Yeah, very, very religious. <laughs> very, um, yeah, just challenging that, uh, that whole archetype, like very visibly.
1: Well, and the whole um, relationship between religion and sexuality is very relevant to her career mm-hmm. and very relevant to the Vesta archetype.
0: Well, and it's also probably really relevant that Mae um, West had mars and aquarius in her 10th house um which would be in an uh, overcoming sign based square with with vesta and ceres so
1: shaking things out know,
0: while yeah i mean she's really challenging and rebelling against that um uh those ideas uh because well here that's how it plays out <laughs> uh in so in response to a very commercially successful play called sex just sex. Religious, yeah. Local religious groups complained to the city council, and the theater was raided. She was arrested along with the rest of the, the cast and sentenced to ten days in jail for corrupting the morals of youth. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, they offered to you know let her go by just paying a fine, but she chose to spend the ten days in jail because she wanted to use the the controversy to stir up publicity.
1: So, just love that Torian stubbornness getting mm-hmm. it done,
0: yeah, and uh but I don't know something that i I sort of think about with Mae West specifically is i mean she was she was a sex symbol, she was like a almost like a sexual goddess kind of of the time, like there were um you know posters of her in and a lot of young men in the adult men's bedrooms um you know she almost in a sense, kind of worshipped herself. There's something uh, about the devotional element that is almost like, you know, she becomes like the the receiver of the devotion.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, that's kind of true in the case of the Vestal Virgins too, where, um, I mean, they weren't worshipped as gods or anything, but they were given such special reverence Mm -hmm. by people in their society because they were so associated with the sacred and with, with everything that was thought to hold society together. Yeah. But, you know, May was reverenced for different reasons, but nonetheless, and yeah. there's like, there's that reverencing around sexuality too, where the Vestal Virgins are sort of given reverence because they're non-sexual. May is given reverence because she is very openly sexual.
0: Yeah, When it's, Almost like she's kind of saying, like, um, like I can be sexual, you can be sexual, and your fire isn't necessarily being compromised. You know, maybe that's not the fire. Maybe that's the fire that, uh, probably what Mars and Aquarius would say is that, you know, the man is uh, having, you, having you believe in. You know, this is yeah. a, <laughs> the, the real fire is, is within you, you know, or something like that. I don't think she ever said that, but. Uh, She was very comfortable, you know, taking on that role and challenging, you know, in the 1920s, a society that would have been terrified uh, of a woman like her, but she, you know, they were also, you know, deeply drawn to her and she was a huge celebrity.
1: And she's on my list of heroes already. I really knew nothing about her before you.
0: Yeah, no, she's awesome. I didn't know a ton about her either, but uh, what's the other thing? She also, similar to Catherine Hepburn. Never had any children. Um, also, I and mean, she had some complicated relationships, one of which I mean, I think one of her main relationships actually, uh, early on before her professional career, you know, they broke off the romantic relationship, but they stayed friends the rest of their lives. Um, they lived in the same apartment building uh, in to old age, like after they had retired and um, which just find interesting. By the end, uh, yeah, she divorced her. Well, there's controversy about you know whether or not she was married to the first one, um, but she was divorced in the '40s and um, stayed single until 1980s. 1980, she died at the age of eighty, eighty-four, something like that, in her 80s. Good, healthy age.
1: I think Catherine Hepburn also remain friends with her husband after their divorce, hmm. which, you know, it's not uncommon, but it's certainly, I mean, it's one of those things like I tend to remain friends with most of my exes and I, I'm always shocked that um, there is still like a weird stigma around that. So I don't know how it was, you know, for Catherine Hepburn or Mae West, um, you know, during that time period, but, I mean, there certainly is, like, people get weird about it if you're still friends with your ex. They're always like, are you sure that's healthy? And, you know, people are really skeptical about it. Um, I don't know if that's uh, connected to the asteroid goddesses in terms of, you know, unconventional relationships in any way. But
0: yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean convention would be that you, I don't know, because whose convention are we talking about? But um... yeah.
1: Yeah, I know. It's like, where does that come from? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it. The convention is you just don't split up. And then I, yeah, I don't know where that idea comes from. I just, I know my own experiences that, you know, I run into this fairly often. If I tell people I'm friends with exes, they're like, oh, is that, is that okay? Like, are you sure that's a good idea? Isn't that weird for you?
0: Yeah, no, actually, um, I mean, Vesta isn't particularly prominent for me, but, uh, you know, my ex-wife and I get along well. Uh, A good healthy co-parenting relationship and a lot of people think that that's that's weird like oh you guys should hate each other or or whatever but kind of making me think about um, Vesta in the sense that you know with Audrey Hepburn and Mae West kind of having that theme uh, of staying friends with the ex it's almost like you're able to I don't know maybe they felt like they uh, were able to be respected more uh, when they weren't having sex with the person you know
1: Yeah. Yeah, all of these, all these archetypes really highlight the way women and femininity in general uh, are defined by sexuality and relationships. You don't. We don't have any virgin gods in our astrological pantheon who are noted for being, you know, unique or special in some way or particularly close to the divine because they're virgins. Like they're all they're all doing whatever they please on that front. They're not really defined by their relationships in the same way. You know, it's never, Zeus is never introduced as the husband of Hera, but Hera is most famously the wife of Zeus.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What I really love about, um, the asteroids or like starting to really love about them is that, uh, even if they did nothing, but just like looking at them and just thinking about these concepts, um, For both men and women, like how do you relate to these themes? I mean, this conversation
1: and this research is also really driving home for me as a non-binary person just how incredibly heteronormative and cisnormative astrology still is. Like we're still working with a set of symbols that it's very binary. Um, you know, the the symbols that we have in astrology are given very binary gender assignments and you know the stories um you know especially in the case of the asteroids because they don't play the kind of role that the traditional planets do you know those roles being more based on um how they participate in a system you know like they're based in geometry and sign rulership and stuff like that you know the only sort of interpretive um resource that we have for working with the asteroids is the mythology of their namesake
0: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah yeah so it's i mean i you know it was really just introduced to the asteroids properly this week so that's still something that's like uh, in an ongoing way you know i'm trying to figure out how do i fit into these symbols and how do i work to change these symbols in such a way that they are more inclusive of different experiences that are not, um, you know, cis-normative or heteronormative experiences? Yeah. Where do I see myself in all of this?
0: Um You know, whatever your relationship to gender, uh, you experience these, you know, archetypes. Um, you're relating to them. Uh, I think that a lot of maybe male privilege is not really having to, or not having to recognize their relationship to Mm -hmm. um, these themes and concepts. Um, But you are, it's, it's there like in, and astrology can be a really good way of drawing your attention to those things. See, you know, for sure how you're interacting with them.
1: Yeah. It's like, I have, I have no choice, but to grapple with this because it's constantly on my radar. Um, you know, and that's part of privilege is just not really yeah. having to think about it because you're the default. So, you know, that doesn't really set off big alarm bells for you. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're not sort of forced to think about these ideas day in and day out because they're directly affecting, you know, every aspect of your life and making it more difficult and more complicated.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I know I'm, I'm guilty of it to some degree. Like I, uh, like t- prefer almost like oh my my inclination is like oh well the, the planets are just planets and they have these archetypes and like I don't really want to think about it as as gendered but you know yeah they're all men they're all men <laughs> like I don't know like it's easy <laughs> it's easy for me because uh, I live in a culture where uh, male is almost the default kind of gender
1: and we do at least have Mercury
0: yeah androgynous Mercury but even
1: even in traditional astrology you know and it. All of the planets are given very binary gender assignments of masculine or feminine, but Mercury can be either one.
0: Maybe that's why... where you find it. Yeah, maybe that's why uh, I read something about... I guess there's a debate in the astrological community, or some segment of it, about whether or not Vesta rules Virgo. Um, I I don't know. But I I can see where maybe maybe some of that's coming from. Mercury... um, it's like the androgynous planet. Vesta has this association with, at least Vesta, the goddess has this association with androgyny to some degree. I believe she was called the by kind of twentieth century like psychoanalysts the archetypally the the phallic mother, kind of like a, a desexualized mother, like as opposed to Ceres who obviously had a baby. She had to have sex to have the baby. But the um it almost puts Vesta in this sort of different role that we ha- we do have, you know, like Mother Teresa. We have um these figures in oh man, now we have to look at Mother Teresa's birth chart. <laughs> um <laughs> in Roman mythology or in Roman society, Vesta had this association with liminality, like um, you know, that the the space between things. Yeah, she's sort of like
1: the um Where Janice, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, was the doorway. Mm. She was the, I guess, the vestibule or whatever you would call it. Like another one of the sort of transitional spaces between one place and another.
0: Yeah. uh, It's like brides couldn't step on the threshold. They'd step over the threshold. Uh, Right. You don't want to offend offend Vesta. Vesta. Yeah. like That's the sacred space. She's the threshold. I mean, there's obvious, you know, tie in to female sexuality. But, you know, being between male and female, being between one place and another, uh, and often we have rituals around these kind of transitions, you know, like a a wedding uh, is the obvious example, but like a a bar mitzvah, you know, or bat mitzvah, or a graduation ceremony, you know, it's all about uh, kind of stepping over that threshold from one stage to the next. Maybe Vesta, like, maybe lives in that space, that's her space, you know, that, that, in between spaces maybe her sacred space that
1: yeah and there's something that you know you can see why people want to give virgo to her because there is that Mm -hmm. mercurial quality as well that liminal quality that we know is a component of mercury Mm -hmm. yeah there's that obvious one but i mean i when i think Ceres and vesta are two where people kind of associate them with virgo They say they have some affinity with Virgo, um, Ceres being about the harvest and Vesta, obviously, being the virgin. But I guess until now, I hadn't really recognized that quality of liminality as well and being a deity about transitions and how similar that is to Mercury as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's easier for me to give, like, the sign, I don't know, give particular sign affinities to. The other ones.
1: Yeah, I haven't really been thinking about them in terms of sign affinities all that much. I know Dimitra um, in her book uh, has a few signs, two or three signs that um, she considers to have some affinity for the asteroids, but I'm, I'm too traditional. I cannot untie <laughs> the signs from the traditional planets. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, affinity is different than rulership, too. But there is a... Yeah. yeah. My brain yeah. does tend to go a little bit there. Like, oh, yeah, which one... Which sign can squeeze the most juice out of, of one of these asteroids? Yeah. You know, like, I want to... Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, but Vesta, you know, maybe... I just want to say Scorpio to some degree, but not, not. I don't know. That came into
1: my mind, too. And then I was like, she doesn't have the aggressive connotations that Scorpio does well, like, Scorpio is not as still, yeah, uh, it's a little more
0: like defensive and protective. More defensive. Know? Yeah, like but... you will not cross.
1: <laughs> That's true. That is true. As like a guardian of the threshold, Scorpio is a good sign. Mm-hmm. Like I am securing this boundary and you are not getting past it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um and I hear like Aquarius thrown around for Palace a lot. Kind of like kinda like that one.
1: That one's interesting. Yeah, the palace is the one where I'm like, there really isn't a sign that particularly stands out as having an affinity. Maybe Scorpio, again, for that reason that uh, Athena is more of a defensive war goddess, not an offensive mm-hmm. one. And she's more, she tends to be, not that this is necessarily a Scorpio thing, but um, at least in the sense that, you know, Scorpio is the nocturnal, side of Mars and a little bit less direct in terms of how it or less a little more subtle in terms of how it influences or responds to crisis and conflict um Mm -hmm. Athena was more known for supporting heroes in their conflicts
0: than um
1: fighting herself yeah I think
0: she also took like a strategic approach when she did fight um she tended to do better she didn't actually fight as much as like Mars did but um didn't have like the she blood, to win the blood she lust did. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah she was gonna win and she would do it because she had a plan you know mm-hmm.
1: yeah she just doesn't fit like neatly into any one of the signs really mm-hmm. there are a couple of resources that i want to share in terms of learning more about the asteroids um and i'll include links to both of these resources in the show notes The first one is just like a general resource on learning more about asteroids is the website of Empress Atlantis. She's an astrologer who works um, really intensively with the asteroids and her website is just an incredible resource Um, and just like, it's a library of more resources and more astrologers who work with the asteroids. That's just like really well organized. So if you're interested in them, um, definitely check out her website. And there's also a project called asteroids of the gods, which unfortunately seems to be inactive. Um, I think it's been inactive for maybe close to a year now, but um, this project's uh blog is still up on tumblr and so there's this there's still this whole archive of resources and interesting discussions about the intersection between astrology and polytheism and as a pagan and a polytheist um i thought this might be worth mentioning it uh it basically um the project has instructions on looking up any of the asteroids that have been named after deities from different traditions on astro.com if you're casting a chart. So if you are a polytheist and say you're a devotee of Dionysus or Diana or Odin, there are asteroids named after those deities and you can look up their numbers and pop them into your birth chart on astro.com. So um, people were, Using that, um, you know, as a tool to think about their relationships with their gods, Um, you know, depending on what house and sign it was in, you know, if there was sort of a message there about um, that particular relationship or what that relationship is asking of them. So anyway, check that out. And if you want to know where other gods are in your birth
0: chart, there are a lot of them. I really like that you're um, <clears throat> kind of being Vesta for that, that project. <laughs> and, like found this fire, you know, that's like, oh, it's kind of going out. I want to be the keeper of this fire. So yeah. yes, everyone, please um, check this project. The What's it called again? Asteroids of the Gods. Asteroids of the Gods, yeah. You showed it to me. It does look really cool. And um, yeah, help Tristan keep that fire alive. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole archive of experiences that people have shared um with their deities and you know, any insights that they gleaned from finding the position of their asteroids in their birth chart. So that's that's pretty cool. I really I that's my favorite stuff. I love the lore, but people's personal experiences with their deities is my absolute favorite stuff to read about. Oh yeah. And if it also has to do with astrology, then you've just hit all of the all the sweet <laughs> spots for me, really. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, does that end our um what would be the word for this our audiobook on, on the asteroids <laughs> not, not <quite.
1: laughs> yeah our our epic adventure. yeah into the asteroids.
0: This was a an episode of mythic proportions.
1: Oh
0: yeah, you, Tristan, I know have uh quite a few things to plug right now, right?
1: I think I think just the usual. I think just my actually, you know, I I guess I have one additional thing. Um so you can find me on Instagram at Bad astrology. if Instagram is your thing. And if you are interested in booking a consultation with me, there is a booking link uh on my website at badsignastrology.ca. Uh, and I'll have links to those in the show notes. And I have also started up a blog. Um, so you can find me as Bad Sign Astrology on Tumblr, um, or you can just read my blog on my website. And I have been writing articles about all the planets where I go through a few source texts uh, starting from the second century and moving all the way up to the 20th century. And you know, do a, a brief sort of comparison, and then talk a bit about how I interpret those planets in my own practice. So, yeah, if you want to read those articles on the planets,
0: please check that by out. The way. Thank you. Um.
1: <clears throat> right, I'm supposed to say and you. No, 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 no. I just sit here ah, staring ahem. blankly at you waiting for you to assert Are you going yourself. To ask
0: me what I want to plug? <laughs> no. Uh no, yeah, no. Um I'm too No, much actually, I actually for that
1: it's all about me. <laughs> yeah.
0: no, I could uh I almost feel like I have one less thing to to plug. Um not that uh Killer Cosmos is dead. Uh I just don't want to say that a new episode is coming out. Um too busy with with uh, this really awesome podcast I've been working on called the Astrology Hotline, uh, you might want to check it out. <laughs> but also, uh, if you want to book a consultation with me, you can go to my website, KylePierceAstrology uh, And you know, I got uh, some stuff written on there. You know, you can read that stuff.
1: Yeah, hey, you've got some Bye. some pretty cool articles about the lunations.
0: I mean, I don't have, like, the extensive, you know, historical references. And, like, I feel like you you cited, like, all your, your stuff. <laughs> I, mean, it was, it was pretty I mean, it's... Impressive.
1: It's still not comprehensive. exactly... Comprehensive. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it comprehensive. I didn't do it with great scholarly rigor. I mean, I wrote an article a day for three days as kind of a challenge to myself. Um, I'd like to thank Porter our listener this week who sent in this fantastic question um, and sent us down this whole path, this like rabbit hole of they might've got more than they were expecting. And I got more than I was expecting. And I think this is just the beginning of a lengthy relationship with the asteroids for me.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Thank you Porter. Cause um, I would have probably gone on ignoring the asteroids for, for a long time, but um, I I feel like I'm I've been converted. You know, <laughs> I think I'm still figuring it out. And still, I don't I don't know if uh, if uh, they're going to be showing up in um, consultations quite yet, but they are definitely on my radar for keepsies.
1: Yep, for further research.
0: Yeah, well, um, with that we will sign off and look forward to seeing you all next time.
1: Thanks for tuning in.
0: Can actually see you. Okay. If you have a question you would like to hear answered on Astrology Hotline, go ahead and send us an email at astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com. Attention, listeners. Astrology Hotline is at war. At war with unanswered astrology questions. We have the weapons, we have the training. But to achieve ultimate victory, we need your help. I want you to take out your phone, open up Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, crush all five stars, and rain down a righteous review of furious satisfaction. I want you to open up Spotify, subscribe to Astrology Hotline, and launch one high-speed thumb of flaming death at that five-star rating. And I want you... To find the gnarliest, most insidious astrology question you can find, email it to astrologyhotlinepod at gmail.com so we can slaughter it mercilessly on the show. Together, we can conquer astrology one question at a time.